Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 27th of June, 2019, by Dr. Claire Carlyle Tresh, Reader in Philosophy and Theology at King's College, London. The lecture was given as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series and is entitled, Being in God, Spinoza, Panentheism, and Catholic Theology. So at the moment I'm writing this book and um, part of that project is to situate Spinoza in the Christian theological tradition, which is perhaps a slightly eccentric thing to do, um, but that's, that's what I'm doing. So um, and this talk is, is really pulling together some material from this book I'm writing. Um, unfortunately, it's kind of too, it, it, in the book it will be two separate chapters, and I'm trying to cover quite a lot of ground. But that's because I'm really hoping for um, some feedback on um, not just the detail of the argument, but the kind of bigger picture. So I crammed quite a lot in, and I hope that I'll get some help with, with these, these um, two aspects of the argument. <coughs> So, the title is Being in God, Spinoza's Pantheism. Being in God is the fundamental tenet of Spinoza's thought. In the Ethics, which was published shortly after Spinoza's death in 1677, it is presented as both an ontological principle and an ethical task. In part one of the text, which is called Of God, Spinoza states that, quote, whatever is, is in God, and nothing can exist or be conceived without God. That's Proposition 15, part one. In part four, which focuses on the human condition and the good life, he writes that in proportion as we are affected with joy, we advance towards greater perfection and consequently participate more fully in the divine nature. So the ethics, by the way, is divided into five parts. Um, part five is about um, blessedness or, or, or beatitude. In this talk, I want to consider both of these aspects of being in God, the ontological and ethical, and how they fit together. Is it paradoxical to present an ontological principle as an ethical task? Or is the effort to become who you are, in Nietzsche's words, integral to the logic of religious life? Considering being God as an ontological principle, I plan to argue that Spinoza is a panentheist, not a pantheist, who therefore affirms God's transcendence. Considering being in God as an ethical task, I want to explore how the concept of participation enables Spinoza <coughs> to identify varying degrees of being in God and to conceive an ethical and indeed religious life as a striving to be in God more fully. In both cases, the theological and the ethical, I see the same insistence on bringing <coughs> together imminence and transcendence. In this respect, I want to read Spinoza alongside pre-modern Christian theologians, in particular St. Anselm and St. Thomas Aquinas, from whom he is considered to be rather remote by most theologians, as well as by most Spinoza scholars. So the first section of the paper is called, Whatever is, is in God. These five words, it's also five words in the Latin, indicate significant features of the nature of God, 
and of the nature of everything that exists. It tells us, these words tell us that God contains whatever is, and it also tells us that whatever is, is in God. It is worth pausing to appreciate this radical ontological claim. For Spinoza, all being is qualified as being in God, and the hyphens that I've added here um, indicate that there is no being apart from God or prior to God. The first and absolutely immediate truth about anything that is, anything at all, is that it's in God. Um, and there's a, the first sort of big chunk of uh, quotation from the handout is a sort of selection from, of, of definitions and a couple of propositions from part one of the ethics which I'll be referring to. Um, and when we just glance at this extract from the text, um, we're reminded that the ethics is written according to um, a geometrical method <coughs> um, inspired by Euclid. And as we see in the demonstration to proposition 15, so that's the propositions at the bottom of that um, section on, on the handout, whatever it is in God, um, Spinoza frequently cites earlier claims as the basis for his present claim. In the act of reading the text, this method generates repetitions as the reader recalls or rereads the propositions being cited. So Spinoza says, you know, by proposition five, this must be the case. You think, oh gosh, what was proposition five again? So, and so you have to go back and remind yourself what it is. Or if you remember what it is, then obviously you, you, you think about that proposition again. Each proposition thus gains a degree of intensity, a degree of significance, according to how often it is cited by Spinoza and thus repeated by the reader. Those propositions that are most often repeated or reinforced are the philosophical equivalent of load-bearing columns in a building, since they are holding up the greatest portion of Spinoza's philosophical system. E1 Proposition 15, whatever is, is in God, which I'm calling the principle of being in God, is the hardest working proposition of part one of the ethics. It's cited throughout the five parts of the ethics, and more frequently than any other element of part one. It's cited eight times in part one, seven times in part two, twice in parts four, twice in part five, requiring the reader to recall it again and again. Thus, this Panentheus principle acquires a kind of intensity or density over the course of the ethics. Furthermore, the principle of being in God is inscribed into the foundation stones of Spinoza's metaphysics, that is to say, the concepts of substance and mode. Nothing exists besides substances and modes, Spinoza writes in the demonstration to Proposition 15. He defines substance, this is definition three, as that which is in itself, while a mode is that which is in another, definition five. In fact, he, he goes on to argue, there is only one substance, namely God. <coughs> and since whatever is, is either in itself or in something else, that's axiom one, which is also there, then everything is in God. This is God. This substance, God is in say i.e. in himself. So modes are in God and God is also in God as well. Um, Spinoza further elucidates his principle of being in God by explaining that, quote, God is the imminent, not the transient, cause 
of all things. That's proposition 18 in the handout. Transient causation means the production of an effect outside its cause. In his short treatise, an earlier text that was a kind of prototype for the ethics, Spinoza states that, quote, outside God there is nothing, and God is an imminent cause. In a letter to Henry Oldenburg written um, in 1675, so towards the end of his life, Spinoza sought to clarify his views about the relationship between God and nature. I hold an opinion about God and nature very different from that which modern Christians defend. For I maintain that God is the imminent cause of all things, not the transient cause. And here he cites when St. Paul's reference to the God in whom we live and move and have our being. <clears throat> here in this letter, um, Spinoza distinguishes his canentheist position from the view of what he calls modern Christians. And this lends support to my view that he is concerned specifically to oppose a decisive shift in early modern theology and philosophy evidenced in both Calvinist doctrine and Cartesian metaphysics. Calvinism and Cartesianism are the twin targets of the ethics of modern. The tendency of both these forms of thought is to separate <coughs> God from nature and to produce increasingly voluntarist and anthropomorphic conceptions of God's personhood. After Spinoza's death, the separate God generated by what he called modern Christians, hardened into the remote God of 18th century deism, and subsequently disintegrated into the vanishing God of 19th century atheism. Although Spinoza's explicit position seems to be that all causation is an efficient causation, I'm beginning to explore the idea that his rejection of the view of God as a transient cause applies implicitly to um, final causation, as well as explicitly to um, efficient causation. Spinoza criticises a model of efficient causation in which the effect lies outside or beyond the causal activity, that's what he calls transient causation. He also criticises a model of final causation in which the cause, or the telos, lies outside or beyond the causal activity. So in transient efficient causation, the effect is outside the causing process. In sort of what you could call transient final causation, the cause is outside the um, causing process. Spinoza um, criticised teleological thinking in general, but I think that this critique was directed to what we could call transient teleology, and that his philosophy accommodates, and perhaps even requires, a more imminent conception of teleology. And I'm going to return to this point when I discuss the ethical significance of being in God. <clears throat> Spinoza's characterization of God as an imminent cause has led to some rather careless misreadings of his theological position. It is very common to read or hear descriptions of Spinoza as a thinker of pure imminence, and Deleuze's reading of Spinoza, how Deleuze uh, describes Spinoza, and that's been really influential. And it's also found in in, sort of, in less kind of continental, <laughs> less Deleuzean um, contemporary readings of Spinoza too. So we hear that Spinoza is a thinker of pure imminence, and that he denies God's transcendence. And I've just <coughs> this uh, quotation from Stephen Nadler on the handout in a very recent book, not published actually. Um, but this is just a kind of classic 
um, passage that you, that you sort of come up with. Classic characterization of Spinoza's position, which we come across all the time. There is no transcendent deity. God is nothing distinct from nature itself. God is nature. Nature is all there is. This is why, this another, this is why Spinoza prefers to praise Deus Siva Natura, God or nature. <coughs> in fact, whenever, whenever Spinoza uses the word imminent, it always designates a kind of causation. He doesn't say God is imminent, he says he talks about an imminent cause. And is opposed to transient causation. That's how he uses the word imminent in, in contrast to transient causation. Um, this word imminent is never opposed to transcendence, and Spinoza nowhere denies God's transcendence. Indeed, he doesn't use the word transcendent, which wasn't um, applied to God until the late 19th century in the way that we use it now. Nevertheless, his critique of the idea of God's transient creation is often interpreted as a wholesale rejection of a religious tradition labelled with overly generalising phrases such as classical theism or traditional Christianity. So it's the kind of thing you hear from Spinoza scholars. It's Spinoza criticising <coughs> traditional Christianity in something. As mentioned, I want to argue that Spinoza is, is responding to something much more historically and doctrinally specific than this, to a distinctively modern separation of God and nature, which is not what most contemporary theologians understand by divine transcendence. He is quite the opposite, in fact. God can transcend creation without being separate from it, and indeed articulating God's simultaneous transcendence and imminence is precisely the theological challenge addressed by great thinkers such as Anselm and Aquinas. So section two now, uh, Spinoza's transcendent God or why Spinoza is not a pantheist. Spinoza has been described variously as an atheist, as a pantheist, and less commonly as a panentheist. It is true that one might critique uh, Calvinism or deism from either of these three positions. That's one thing they all have in common, <laughs> is that they're opposite, the opposite of the, what we could just call Calvinism, I think Spinoza's claim that whatever is, is in God and nothing can exist if he conceived without God is sufficient to show that he is not an atheist. We need to be more careful in distinguishing Spinoza's panentheism from pantheism, especially since the theological difference between these two positions tends to be underestimated. Panentheism is sometimes treated as a kind of variant of pantheism, when in fact they are, in at least one crucial respect, opposed to one another. Pantheism denies God's transcendence, while panentheism affirms it. At first glance, the view that Spinoza is a pantheist seems more credible than the charge of atheism. This view has textual justification in the striking phrase, God or nature, which is frequently repeated as a kind of slogan for Spinozism, as we saw in the passage from Mother's book. <coughs> Commentators often assert that you know, Spinoza identifies God with nature, as if this claim were entirely uncontroversial. And then they tend to read back into the ethics um, a specifically modern conception of nature as separate from God, concluding that by Deus Siva Natura, Spinoza really means you know, just nature. <clears throat> Spinoza does not offer a definition of nature in the ethics. It doesn't appear in the eight definitions at the beginning of part one, and um, here those are in the handout. It's actually the whole list comprises the cause of itself, finite thing, substance, attribute, mode, God, freedom, necessity, 
kind of tendency. It doesn't define nature. The word nature has many different meanings. The OED lists over 30 distinct uses of the noun, as well as transitive and intransitive verb forms. Given Spinoza's reluctance to define natura in the ethics, it is wise to treat this word as a provisional placeholder, an open question, rather than as a determinate entity to which God can then be reduced. The view that Spinoza is a, pan is a pantheist probably rests in large part on a persistent tendency not only to interpret Deo Siva natura carelessly, but also to give this phrase more weight than it deserves within Spinoza's philosophical system. I've drawn attention to the, the weight or intensity of proposition um, 15, um, part 1, whatever it is in God. And in contrast to that, um, Deus Siva Natura occurs only twice in the ethics. Or maybe three times, but two of those are just sort of in the same, um, in the same sentence. It doesn't appear in part 1, which is expressly focused on God. And if Spinoza had wanted to make a robust metaphysical claim about the identity of God and nature, this would have been the place to do it. Nor does Spinoza use the phrase Deus Siva Natura in any of his definitions or propositions. It occurs for the first time in the much more loosely written preface to part four of the ethics. Um, and that's um, on the handout where he, he writes in, Nature doesn't act for the sake of an end, since that eternal and infinite being whom we call God or nature acts by the same necessity whereby he exists. Hence the reason why God or nature acts and exists is one and the same. <clears throat> Here Spinoza is criticising a prevalent tendency to attribute purposes to nature. And since this tendency was closely allied to what he saw as a misguided anthropomorphic model of God's free will, it is natural for him to treat God and nature together in this discussion. In describing nature as eternal and infinite, Spinoza was identifying nature with a recognisable conception of God, rather than identifying God with and thereby reducing God to a familiar concept of nature. After being thus introduced in part of his preface, um, Deus Siva Natura is then repeated in the demonstration to um, Proposition 4, uh, part 4, next quotation, um, where Spinoza claims that human beings are necessarily part of nature and subject to influences beyond their own power. So this is, yes, it is, it is the phrase is um, repeated twice here. In this demonstration, he emphasizes that human beings are not autonomous or self-sufficient. Uh, so he writes, the power by which each individual thing, and consequently human being, preserves his being, is the power of God or nature. Here, Spinoza makes it clear that he's talking about God in a highly qualified sense, not in so far as God is infinite, he says. The issue at stake in this passage is the relationship between an individual person's power and the power of God or nature. Spinoza is explaining that our human power is distinct but not separate from the wider reality in which we participate. He is arguing that we're mistaken when we take ourselves to be autonomous beings, or, to put it in more technical and more obviously Cartesian terms, when we take ourselves to be substances. Spinoza doesn't think we're substances, he thinks we're modes of substance and only God is substance. At the end of the passage, the words soi naturae might themselves be read as signaling the very partial or qualified sense of God 
this issue here. Whereas Spinoza suggests that human power is part of the infinite power of God or nature, this claim cannot be true if God considered absolutely, since in part one of the ethics, he has indicated that God is simple, neither composed of parts, nor divisible into parts. Spinoza conflates God and nature in the course of insisting that human beings are part of nature. Um, and, sorry, though Spinoza conflates God and nature in the course of insisting that human beings are part of nature, it's precisely this meriological issue, the issue of the relation between parts and wholes, that demands a clear distinction, and not of course a separation, between God and nature. Spinoza never claims that a human being or any other finite thing is part of God, while he frequently asserts that we are part of nature. This signals that God and nature are both distinct, though not separate realities. Nature has parts, while God is simple. Read in context, then, Spinoza does not appear to be making a metaphysical declaration about the identity of God and nature when he uses the phrase Deus Supernatura early um, in part four of the Ethics. Um, and that was really the main textual evidence for Spinoza being a pantheist, and, and so I'm trying to just sort of say that we shouldn't pay too much attention to it, basically, um, or at least not, as, not treat it like this sort of strong uh, metaphysical claim. In contrast with pantheism, Spinoza's principle of being in God establishes an asymmetry between God and the world, which is articulated in his distinctive use of the concept of substance and mode. Spinoza uses these concepts to affirm the dependence of all things on God. To be a mode is to be constitutionally dependent, that's what it is to be a mode, in another, to be in another and conceive through another whereas substance is self-sufficient in itself and conceived through itself. This insistence on a one-way ontological dependence distinguishes Spinoza's panentheism as sharply from pantheism as from the doctrine of a separate, interventionist and anthropomorphic God, which the ethics explicitly rejects. We may view this latter doctrine, the doctrine of the separate God, as um, the deist tendency, even if it's not actually deism, and Spinoza rejects this view very directly in um, the corollary to Proposition 24, where he writes, God is not only the cause that things begin to exist, but also that they persevere in existing, or to use a scholastic term, God is the cause of the being of things. In denying the asymmetry between God and the world, Pantheism seems to be the opposite of deism. However, both pantheism and deism compromise our deep ontological dependence as beings in God. Pantheism privileges God's imminence at the cost of transcendence, while deism offers a false hollow transcendence. Affirming the panentheist alternative to these two positions is not a matter of finding a balance or a mean between imminence and transcendence as if we must avoid an excess of either quality. Rather, Spinoza's panentheism recognises recognizes imminence and transcendence as inseparable features of one theological reality, securing true imminence and true transcendence. Spinoza accentuates the uniqueness as well as the transcendence of God. Only God is substance, while everything else is a mode of substance. God is thus ontologically different from all things without being separate from anything. 
a causal relationship between God and finite things is qualitatively different from the causal relations among finite things. God as substance is the imminent cause of the modes, in contrast to the transient causation that operates between the modes. God's transcendence is further secured by Spinoza's claim that God has an infinite number of attributes, uh, ways of expressing God's essence. Um, I think that is in the... Oh yeah, so that's definitely <coughs> six, which is there in handouts. Um, so God has an infinite number of attributes, of which we, human beings, can access only two, thinking or consciousness and extension. This means that the fullness of God's being eludes us. The fine metaphysical balance of immanence and transcendence running through Spinoza's philosophy thus finds an epistemological correlate in an insistence on both divine revelation and divine hiddenness. God's essence, insofar as it's expressed through the attribute of thought, is entirely knowable by human beings. Yet the infinity of attributes constituting God's whole being are not accessible to us. Um, and here, if I had time, I would, I would talk about Anselm's Poslogion <laughs> and uh, the way in, in the Poslogion a panentheist view of God, or rather just the, the sense of being in God, goes together with an apophaticism. So um, Anselm is trying, in the Poslogion, is trying to think philosophically about a God in whom he lives and moves and has his being. Such a God can't be posited as an object, defined as a concept represented by an image. And Spinoza's philosophical task resembles Anselm's in this respect. And I think that the ethics is remarkably um, successful in um, writing about this, this God, the God in whom we live and move and have our being, in um, a purely philosophical idiom. But there, there will be a lot more to say about that, which I don't have time to So this is now part three. Um, thinking about being in God as an ethical task, um, the task of, of participating in the divine nature. So as I mentioned at the start, in the ethics, being in God has a twofold ontological and ethical significance, which renders Spinoza's panentheism both inclusive and hierarchical. Ethics 1 posits being in God as the fundamental feature of everything that exists, without exception, so it's inclusive. In Ethics 4, Spinoza suggests that being in God admits of varying degrees. This means that some beings may be more in God than others. And also, more pertinently to Spinoza, I think, since this um, is a book called The Ethics, um, that each individual's being in God may fluctuate over the, over the duration of its life. Spinoza elucidates the relation of being God in two key passages in part four of the ethics, both of which distinguish the properly joyful religious attitude from the moralizing, self-diminishing ethic promoted by contemporary Christian teachers. Spinoza disliked both pride and humility, and in a scholium uh, to Proposition 45, the proposition itself asserts that hatred can never be good. Um, Spinoza thinks that love should overcome hatred. Um, in the scholium here, uh, he criticizes um, what he calls a harsh and dismal superstition 
which prohibits enjoyment. Um, no deity, he argues, is pleased with my weakness and discomfort, nor do tears, sobs, fear, and other manifestations of that kind, which are signs of the soul's weakness, lead to virtue. On the contrary, the more joy we feel, the more progress do we make towards perfection, i.e. the more do we participate in the divine nature. So the sense of a progress towards perfection and increasing participation. <coughs> the Rosa repeats this point in the appendix to part four, that's the next quotation at the bottom of page two, where he argues that in proportion as we are affected with joy, we advance towards greater perfection and consequently <coughs> participate more fully in the divine nature. This use of the Latin verb participate to articulate our relation to God echoes similar uses of this verb in Spinoza's earlier text. With one exception, all these instances involve the claim that participating in God occurs to a greater or lesser degree. The exception occurs in the first chapter of the Theologico-Political Treatise, where Spinoza argues that because the human mind quote, contains in itself and participates in the nature of God, it follows that our minds can be considered a primary cause of divine revelation. Elsewhere in the Theologico-Political Treatise, Spinoza asserts that ordinary knowledge, quote, has as much right as any other to be called divine, because nature, insofar as we participate therein, dictates it to us. Spinoza's insofar as autonomous here implies that um, participation in God's nature is a matter of degree. In 1665, he had made this point much more explicitly in a letter to Willem van Leyenberg, a Calvinist merchant who drew Spinoza into a lengthy correspondence on theological issues. He turned out to be quite annoying, actually. <laughs> Spinoza, he's rented into his correspondence and then he kept sort of willfully kind of uh, misunderstanding what Spinoza was trying to say. And it got quite tedious to try and discussion. And one of Blyenberg's most pressing questions concerned the source of human evil, which is indeed challenging for uh, panentheist or also pantheist views which refuse to separate God from nature. Spinoza's response to Blyenberg emphasised that perfection and participation in godliness were, in effect, the same thing and a matter of degree. So he wrote, he wrote it is indeed true that, godly, that the godless express God's will in their fashion, but that doesn't make them comparable with the pious, because the more perfection a thing has, the more it shares in godliness, and the more it expresses God's perfection. So this is basically this is neoplatonic Augustinian view that um, evil is just sort of the absence of being, it's just, it's, it's just non-being, it's nothing in itself. Um, in this letter, Spinoza explains that people who, people who are impious or unethical, quote, lack the love of God that comes from knowledge of God and through which alone we are said, putting this in terms that we can understand, to be servants of God. Spinoza's further references to participation in this text circle around these themes of knowledge and love of God. In chapter 4 of the treatise, he, discuss, he discusses the highest good, asserting that the intellect is the best part of our being and that our highest good and perfection depends solely on the knowledge of God. Here, Spinoza urges his readers to perfect the intellect as far as possible. Since all things depend on God, he argues, and this is basically what he also says in um, Proposition 15, um, the title is on God. 
we gain greater and more perfect knowledge of God by gaining knowledge of natural phenomena. So he says if we, you know, if we investigate nature and do some scientific research, then actually we're gaining more knowledge of God. Um, so then he writes, um, this is a pathway down this long passage, um, our highest good not only depends on the knowledge of God, but only consists therein, and it follows that man is perfect or the reverse, in proportion to the nature and perfection of the object of his special desire, hence the most perfect and chief sharer is the, is the highest blessedness. In the highest blessedness is he who prizes above all else, who takes a special delight in the intellectual knowledge of God, the most perfect being. At the end of this passage, Spinoza uses the word participate to, de to denote a sharing in the highest blessedness and closely connects the sharing to love and knowledge of God. Throughout this passage, Spinoza evidently conceives participation not only as a matter of degree, but also as something that a human being can and should strive for and cultivate. Later in the Theological Political Treatise, Spinoza cites 1 John 4.13. Um, Hereby we know that we dwell in God and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit, i.e. love, he adds. Indeed, Spinoza chose this verse from 1 John as the epigraph for this text as a whole. It's there right at the beginning of the text and then he actually discusses it um, within the text. He uses the verb participo to elucidate this verse. Um, the author of 1 John, he writes, has said before that God is love. This is 1 John 4, 7, which he's already quoted. And therefore he concludes that whoever possesses love possesses truly the Spirit of God. As no one has beheld God, he infers that no one has knowledge or consciousness of God except from love towards his neighbour, and also that no one can have knowledge of any of God's attributes except of this love insofar as we participate therein. Here again we find a reference to participation qualified by a cotonous. Again, Spinoza is suggesting that human beings may participate in God's love to varying degrees. Um, so there's just these few sort of scattered uses of the word, of the verb, you know, to participate in Spinoza's writing. Um, and they're there in the ethics, as we've seen, and I think they're quite significant. We can turn to Thomas Aquinas's much more thoroughgoing doctrine of participation in God to understand what might be at stake theologically in Spinoza's use of this verb. The concept of participation recurs in Aquinas' treatment of a whole series of fundamental theological issues. Creatures exist by participation in God's being, they are good by participating in God's goodness, they are happy by participating in God's beatitude. We We've already seen that panentheism and not pantheism affirms the ontological difference between God and created beings. And this is what is at issue in, in Aquinas' doctrine of participation. Aquinas explains that, quote, God is essential being, whereas other things are beings by participation. Again, all, the, all beings apart from God are not their own being, but are beings by participation. This distinction precisely anticipates Spinoza's claim in Ethics 1 that God as substance is in itself, whereas any other being as a mode of substance is in another. Now, several commentators point out that Aquinas' doctrine of participation enables him to envisage a God who is, as Cornelio Fabro put it, at once both imminent and transcendent, and there's quite a few um, 
quotations to this effect um, in part four, um, including one by um, Mahario Sandover, <laughs> um, who um, elucidates um, Aquinas' participatory theology by reflecting on, quote, God's simultaneous imminence and transcendence with respect to creation. The finest of the rights, um, finally rights, um, <laughs> creation is not outside or alongside God is not kind of focus of being, as if God and creation are separate things. In an important sense, creation is involved. Acknowledging that this um, Thomas doctrine of participation seems to lead towards pantheism, not a good thing from his perspective of modern Christian infancy. Um, and all of her response to this concern by noting Aquinas' insistence on the ontological difference between God and creation. But creation receives its existence by participation. God is the source of that existence because God is existence itself. While creation is really distinct from God, the difference between God and creation is not like the difference between creatures. This characterization of Thomas' theology does indeed refute the charge of pantheism. And it is, I think, entirely consistent with Spinoza's pantheism. I think all that applies to, um, to Spinoza too. Considered in the ethical um, context of part four of the ethics, where Spinoza invokes this concept of participation, the key insight emerging from Aquinas' use of this concept is that beings are in God to varying degrees, as we've seen in the way Spinoza uses it too. Aquinas invokes participation in God's goodness to explain the activity of all beings. Quote, all the actions and movements of all creatures exist on account of the divine goodness, not of course in the sense that they are to cause or increase it, but in the sense that they are to acquire it in their own way by sharing what is to some extent in the likeness of it. And um, to different degrees of participation correspond proportional degrees of likeness to God. The higher a thing is in the scale of being, Aquinas writes, the closer it draws to likeness with God. Summarising his hierarchical and teleological metaphysics, Aquinas writes that, quote, all things are directed to the divine goodnesses to their end as we've shown. Among things ordained to this end, some are closer to the end than others, and so participate in the divine goodness more, most abundantly. For Aquinas, it seems, the very concept of participation implies a mixture of being and non-being that grounds a scale of perfection, differing degrees of union with God. Wherever a being is on this participatory scale, it remains qualitatively different from the reality in which it participates. This seems evident, or it becomes evident, in the distinction Aquinas draws between creaturely participation in God and Christ's non-participatory union with God. Um, so he writes that the, um, the possession of infinite grace is restricted to Christ, to other saints is given the grace of being gods or sons of God by participation, to Christ on the contrary is given the grace of being of God not by participation but by nature. Since participation implies an element of non-being, <clears throat> it grounds the possibility of fluctuating degrees of power, of goodness, of perfection within a human life. And this possibility of fluctuation is really, um, I think, the kind of principle underlying uh, Spinoza's account of ethics, of, 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 of the, of, um, or, or also the religious one. 
One of the most interesting aspects of Spinoza's ethical philosophy is the way he analyzes the, the affects or the emotions as the experience of these existential fluctuations. He identifies three basic affects, desire, joy, and sadness. And then he, he analyzes all the other different kinds of affects as kind of combinations or versions of these three basic affects. Desire, um, he defines as the consciousness of our own striving, concepts a very important concept, to persevere in our being. So desire is the consciousness of our striving to persevere in our being. Joy is the feeling of an increase in power, in our own power. Sadness is the feeling of a decrease in our own power. Closely allied to these elemental affects of love and hatred, um, Spinoza <coughs> defines love as joy coupled with the idea of the cause of this joy. So I feel an increase in power, which is joy, and if I think something has caused that, feeling of increase or cause the increase and I love I feel love towards that thing. If I experience a decrease of sadness and I have the idea that someone's caused that then I'll feel hatred towards that person. So these ideas of the causes of our joys and sadness may or may not be true, of course. And indeed Spinoza argues that much love and hatred is based on delusions about the true causes of our joy and sadness. It is because we are participants mixtures of varying degrees of being and non-being, that we are beings capable of suffering and joy, hatred and love, evil and goodness. Of course, this makes participation a mixed blessing. But for Spinoza as for Aquinas, uh, we have a natural orientation to joy, love and goodness, simply because we have a natural orientation towards being. Um, so, uh, this is now... <laughs> Um, on number five of um, and proposition four part three, um, where Spinoza says everything, as far as it can, strives to persevere in its existence. So we have a we have a kind of natural tendency to persevere in being, and that means that we have this kind of natural orientation to joy and love and goodness. Um, and this is how he um, he defines virtue. Um, before P20, the more a man strives and is able to preserve his being, the more highly is he endowed with virtue or power. So Spinoza thinks that virtue is just power. And on the other hand, as far as a man neglects to preserve his being, so far is he weak. Since Spinoza conceives all being as being in God, striving to be means striving to be in God. When we understand that God is the cause of our being, this striving becomes a conscious desire for being in God, um, and it becomes a love of God, because joy, love is joy is the cause of the joy. So when we understand that God is the cause of our being, um, then we, we love God. And because all being is being in God, being in God to a greater extent means being to a greater extent, having more reality, more perfection, more power. Given Spinoza's definition of joy as the feeling of an increase in power, being more fully in God will always be a joyful experience. And given his definition of love, the better we understand God as the cause of our being, the more we will feel love for God. Ethical and religious life for Spinoza should be empowering, not diminishing. If it's not empowering, then it's simply inauthentic. It is a falling away from our being. 
to live a good life is to become who we already are, beings empowered by God, or in other words, beings in God. The combination of eminence and transcendence in Spinoza's panentheist ontology is mirrored in his account of ethical life. It seems to have the same logic, the same structure. On the one hand, he emphasises striving for greater perfection, fuller participation, that is a transcendence aspect. On the other hand, he insists that virtue is its own reward. Perhaps this can be captured by a concept of imminent finalisation or imminent teleology. Um, joy is not a reward extrinsic to virtue, it is simply the feeling of virtue, the feeling of our own power, um, which in turn is just being or power. So virtue is just being a power, um, not a self-sufficient being in power, being in power, but a participation in God's being and power. In Spinoza's the Spinoza theology, there is no distinction between nature and grace. All beings, as God's being, all power is God's power. But this is true only because there is a distinction between God and nature, i.e. because he is an anthropism, not a pantheist. Um, so this, this final quotation, or kind of um, set of quotations here, um, is this, this idea that blessedness is not the reward of virtue, but is virtue itself. Um, and also Spinoza describes blessedness as a, as, as a state of peace and rest, um, anime acquiescentia, the, the, um, the, the acquiescence or the, the contentment of the mind. Um, and he, he, just, he describes that as the highest kind of joy. So on the one hand, you know, Spinoza's and this philosophy of striving, of trying to be more and more, to participate in God more and more. But then, um, and that's what I'm calling a kind of ethical transcendence in a way, but pushing further. But then um, the goal, if you like, is a kind of rest, um, resting in oneself, um, after a scantian say, self-contentment, um, which is always a resting in God. Um, and, and so that's this kind of, yeah, the, the, this sense that the ethical life has the same combination of illness and transcendence that you see in his ontology. I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you.